Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Today we are discussing Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, or Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers, or Halloween 666, The Curse of Michael Myers. This is your co-host, Corbin. I'm Alan from Chicago, and boy, is this an interesting movie. This is probably the most controversial and contentious Halloween film in the entire franchise. Yeah, I can see why. <laughs> like we said, it is the sixth one, even though they have dropped the six. I guess depending on which cover or poster you're looking at, maybe you'll see that number, but this is... Kind of the, uh, I guess it's the end of the trilogy started with number four. Now it does tie in continuity wise with one and two. I won't get into that here. Go back and check out my podcast and make sure to check out the infographic I made with it as well, detailing the different canons and timelines. And this will end our discussion of the Curse of Thorn timeline. After this, we will have no more Curse of Thorn. And you will understand now, once we discuss, what this whole Curse of Thorn is. It really wasn't brought up too much, or basically at all, in number four. Right. It, yeah. I guess it was more so in number five that we started getting the Man in Black. We saw a brand new tattoo on Michael, some symbol we had never seen before. And this movie will, I guess, talk more about that. Right. Uh, that's the plan, at least. Uh, but it is interesting because you and I decided to watch the two main cuts of this movie, which didn't, which one of them didn't even surface uh, legally until 2013, I think. Oh yes, this is <laughs> this is quite quite the discussion which we will get into in just a little bit but thankfully for this review we were able to watch both releases of the movie now this halloween movie was released september 29th 1995 which was actually seven months after i was born so i guess wow. this was the very first movie to be released within my lifetime great wow. yeah isn't doesn't that just make you so happy corbin just so joyful, this one, is it? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Anyways, this was released six years after Halloween 5, making it, at that point, the longest gap in the Halloween franchise between movies. Right, yes. Let's see, six years is quite a while. They had uh, some... There are a couple of reasons as to why it took them so long, and I mean, we'll get into the specifics here in a little bit, but it had to kind of do with uh, Mustafa Akkad not liking the drafts, and on top of all that, legal issues as to who really owns uh, Halloween now, it's kind of all a mess, uh, we'll get into that. It's quite interesting that it took them this long, though, because six years is still a pretty long time for a sequel when they've been pumping them out every year or so, in Halloween's case. That's right. Every Pretty much almost every Halloween movie had come out just the year after. That was the precedent that was being set. Now, originally, it wasn't that way. There was a little more of a gap 
with the earlier movies. Right. But this was a very long gap, and we'll discuss why there was a six-year gap making this movie. And this movie is directed by Joe Chappelle, who has produced the Wire HBO show. Many people know of that. It's well-acclaimed. He's mostly just done a bunch of TV, Chicago Fire, Fringe, CSI Miami, mm-hmm. and this is actually his second theatrical film directing. The movie is written by Daniel Ferens, who produced The Haunting in Connecticut. Oh, okay. I have seen that. Have you seen that one? I haven't. I've seen the poster and maybe a bit of a trailer. It's uh, It's interesting. It wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be when I walk when I was when I got into it, uh, but I and I guess in terms of a recommendation, sure, I guess it's nothing really all that special though. He also most recently produced Amityville: The Awakening. Oh, oh, how interesting! Is, yeah, it's that Bella Thorne movie which I saw a trailer for for the very first Annabelle movie. And like coming soon, and it never came out, and it had like ten different release dates, and was finally just silently slipped out to Redbox recently. Right? Yeah, I remember you telling me about this at one point, and they had just delayed it so much they decided forget about it. It's not getting a theatrical release, (laughs) and so they went straight to home to home video. It's funny that way. He also wrote the Girl Next Door movie, kind of a naughty movie. I never saw it. Oh, I th- I've Had, heard of uh, it, but I haven't seen either. Kim Bauer from 24, Elisha Cuthbert, I believe is her name. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also working on, wrote and directed The Amityville Murders, The oh. Haunting of Sharon Tate, and The Haunting of Nicole Brown Simpson. So he really likes his horror movies, I take it. Yeah, he likes his haunting movies. Whatever he can get his hands on, I guess. <laughs> and it should be noted, he he at the time of writing this movie, he was kind of really had never really done anything before, but he was a big fan of the Halloween franchise, right. dedicated fan, wrote out graphs and timelines of who's related, how does it all connect, and he kind of showed his idea of a draft to the writer of Halloween 5, and that's pretty much what got him the job. Right. Now, as for if his vision did make it to the screen, we will talk about that in just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So this this guy, yeah, Daniel Ferens, a uh, very interesting man because I wouldn't think that just uh, a random fan who hasn't at this point hasn't done too much um, for the Halloweens for really anything uh, gets this job of being the head writer of Halloween 6 as it ended up coming to be. It's quite interesting that they end up going down that road in my mind. Oh, it's definitely surprising for a franchise that has been around for nearly 20 years and has had, well, I guess not really any big names attached to it besides John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. It's just surprising because 4 and 5, it's no secret, they were not doing well. They they didn't do well. Right. Um, not as well as they should have done. And the series was really starting to lose interest. So uh, all of these choices coming on board, I don't understand why. The only person we really have returning is Alan Hayworth for the score. Right. Yeah. And it's even interesting, too, because Michael was 
almost completely removed um, and replaced with some other guy in um, the theatrical cut when I, I guess the director decided that he was too oh. bulky and then decided to replace him with somebody thinner and that's when they did reshoots that's not in the producer's cut it's all kind yeah, of yeah so let's talk about the cast for a little bit this movie is introducing paul steven rudd that's how he's billed not billed that way in the producer's cut though wait a minute i've heard this name before yes the paul rudd who is ant-man in the marvel movies yep. he does comedy he does a lot of different things he has become quite famous since this movie and arguably the most famous person in this movie i don't know anybody else in here aside from donald pleasance right yeah but his fame didn't come till maybe the last few years uh from this recording uh this was 1995 he still had yet to build his career i just found it interesting uh, he came on screen for the first time as tommy i'm just like that isn't paul rudd is it and i tried oh. to talk myself out of it and then come to find out at the very end of the credits it said tommy paul rudd and i was like really the movie also stars marianne hagan mitchell ryan kim darby bradford english keith bogart no relation to humphrey bogart as far as i could find uh, <laughs> yeah, he probably wishes uh mariah o'brien yeah. leo getter jc brandy devin gardner and george p wilbur who is actually returning to play michael myers from halloween 4 the return of michael myers right so <laughs> right so i mean i can't say i've really heard of any of these people except for donald pleasant of course and uh paul rudd but at the time uh it, it only donald pleasant really was uh the most worthy name or at least the most recognized name uh in this cast so you did you notice who's missing from this cast list Ah, uh, Jamie Lee oh. Curtis. I knew it. <laughs> once again. Yeah. No. <laughs> Danielle Harris, the central, pretty much the central figure of Halloween 4 and 5. Jamie. Uh, who played Jamie? Yeah. Uh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, I guess I'll save it for just a little bit why Danielle Harris did not come back to reprise her role as Jamie in this movie, but... Yep, it's always been a sore point for fans and kind of a sore issue for Daniel right. Harris herself. Anyways, this movie holds a five on oh. IMDb. That is, this isn't the lowest, is it? Oh no, Halloween, Halloween three season That's of the right. witch had like a four point. Right. Okay, something. I figured that that was the case, and that doesn't surprise me. That's pretty low. Yeah, it's pretty bad because they've So they did they did climb, the scores climbed after Halloween three and then they declined. Quickly after Right, that. yeah. They went up a little bit and then six came out and they just tanked. Yeah. There's no score, cinema score for this movie, but the critics consensus on Rotten Tomatoes, only six percent of critics. Very close to zero. I'm guessing this is for the theatrical cut. This is only um, for the theatrical cut. Yeah. I couldn't find any Rotten Tomato score or IMDb page for the producer's cut, which I'm a little surprised about. Yeah. I I mean, that makes sense. If there's only 
usually a movie only gets one page, even if there are multiple cuts. Um, I although that could be controversial, and they are, I guess you could and probably should have different pages for the different cuts, but whatever, I guess. Well, and only 38% of audiences recommended this as well. So not popular among critics at all, and same with audiences. Right. So I do know that when they screened this movie um, for audiences for you know testing and stuff like that, there was quite a negative response uh, to a lot of it. And as they stated in the, the article, um, the the audience was mostly 14 year old boys that is funny yes so mind you this is not the the, what would become the theatrical cut that was originally screened what was originally screened was most mostly what would be the producer's cut and right that received negative reaction for some reason and then everybody really hated the theatrical cut and now everybody once the producers cut it's really crazy right right and i mean yeah we'll get into the differences and why some people prefer the other here in a little bit but yeah this movie i stated in, in the last podcast that it seemed like halloween 5 was just hidden like th- we couldn't find a trailer for it we couldn't find, uh, there was little information about it. It just seemed like a movie that nobody nobody really cared to see. Um, and it's kind of the same way with this one, but it has a more, more of a following to it, which is even more interesting. And once again, the budget for this movie is $5 million. That's the pretty much the same budget as 4 and 5. It's kind of the magic number. And it grossed $15 million. And if I'm not mistaken, this is pretty much like 4, 5, and 6 like all gross the same amount of money for the most part. Yeah. So, I mean, it kind of just goes to show that no one really minds or really cares to watch these movies. <laughs> it did open at number two at the box office opening weekend with seven point three million. I guess not bad for a five million budget. They made a profit, and uh, number one at the box office that weekend was seven. Yeah, you're not getting even. You're not going to touch that. No, this says that's David seven. Fincher. Yeah, ain't no way. That was number one. The other movies were Devil in Bluegrass, The Big Green, and Steel Big, Steel Little. Never heard of any of those movies. Neither have I. Neither have I. Probably best we haven't. Yeah. (laughs) Now, adjusting for inflation, this is the ninth lowest grossing, with only Halloween 5 being lower. So that is interesting. From everything, we've kind of come to surmise... Four was a welcome return of Michael Myers. It did decent at the box office. And even yeah. when it came to five, it was just a year later in theaters. That is so fast to put that out. And Mustafa Akkad himself right. said, the producer of the entire franchise said, he felt five strayed too far from what people were expecting of Halloween five. And it was, it was the, it was, well, you know what? Go back and listen to our thoughts in the archives for what we thought of Halloween five. Right, exactly. When I saw that, I'm just like, uh, r- really? He thought that was too far? Yeah. Well, 
Okay, so honestly, I'm trying not to tip my hand here, but I'm really surprised this movie did not receive any Razzies. Yeah, that is a... Well, when did the Razzies begin? I forget the actual date. I thought they at least began by 95. Let me look it up, and I'll tell you. Oh, yeah, it began in 81. Um, I thought so. So wait, wait, this was 95, right? Yeah. So let me look up the Razzies for 1990, I'm going to guess, 6. So it was nominated and won the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards. Never heard of those. Yeah. Some knockoff Razzies, it sounds like. I I'm just was flabbergasted. Yeah, I, that is interesting. I mean, there are always kind of some awards that movies get that, I mean, you don't really hear about. Um, that's definitely one of them. So I have the scores from the Razzies for the year that this movie was released, 1990. Well, they, they went off in 96, but, uh, this is for the 1985 movies. Uh, Showgirls got Worst Picture. Well, there's a lot of Showgirls' awards that they got from the Razzies. Makes sense. And, uh, Modonna in Four Rooms got Worst Supporting Actress. Um, Dennis Hooper or Hopper in in Waterworld, guy worst supporting actor. Ooh. Yeah, Halloween Five is not here, and they were up against Showgirls, Scarlet Letter, uh, Four Rooms, Waterworld, stuff like that. Mostly Showgirls that won this year. No Halloween, uh, Halloween Six. That's kind of interesting. I don't understand that. Isn't that a surprise? Yeah, I'm quite shocked myself. Which means that this must not be a According to the Razzies, not nearly as bad. You know what it might be, actually? Uh, the Ra- Okay, so the Razzies, in my mind, Halloween 6 must not have been that big of a deal to audiences in general. And therefore, the Razzies really didn't care for it. Um, that's probably why Showgirls got so many things and these other movies got so much. They probably made enough, had enough publicity on them that caused the Razzies to look out for them. That's my guess, because I know that there are plenty of movies in years past with the Razzies that uh, they are really, really bad mm-hmm. movies, but they don't get very much publicity, and that doesn't really mean, that doesn't really correlate to a Razzie award. Yes. All right, well, do we want to start getting into, well, okay, should we wait until after we give the plot summary, or at least the spoiler warning, to get into the backstory of the production, because it has a couple of spoilers into it. Uh in, in it, yeah, in if it's going to give some spoilers, then we probably should go ahead and give the plot summary. Okay, well, I actually wrote two plot summaries. <laughs> I wrote a plot for the theatrical, and I wrote a plot summary for the producer's cut, since there is noticeable things, changes that I need to say. So, like we said, we are about to talk about the spoilers for both the theatrical cut and the producer's cut. Those are now readily available for you to go and pick up on Blu-ray. I don't know about DVD, or you could just probably rent either of them. So the first uh, plot that I'm going to get into is for the theatrical cut, and then I will give you the plot for the producer's cut. Now, you will notice there are some similarities that I used because they're not, you know, 100% different movies, but a number of plot details different. Jamie Strode, 
The little girl from Halloween 4 and 5, Michael's niece, is noticeably pregnant? Trapped in a bizarre underground hospital, Jamie gives birth to a baby boy. Thanks to the aid of a nurse, Jamie escapes but is pursued by her deranged uncle, the infamous Michael Myers. Michael tracks her to a bus stop where she calls into a radio station in the hopes Dr. Loomis will hear her plea and come to her aid. Loomis, now retired and magically healed, does hear her plea, but he has company. Dr. Wynne, the head of Smith's Grove Sanitarium, has dropped in to let Sam know he is retiring and would like Loomis to take his place. Are you kidding me? Right. Good one. Alas. <laughs> Alas. Jamie is too late for Dr. Loomis to do anything. Jamie hops back in a truck but is swiftly wrecked by Michael's van. She takes shelter in a barn only to be brutally murdered by Michael with farm equipment. Also, that night, in a house sold by Strode Realty, which we later learn is the original Myers house, which Lori's father was showing in the first film, the man in black commands a young boy named Danny to kill for him. Believing it to be a bad dream, Danny's mother, Kara Strode, soothes her son back to sleep, though she finds Danny is drawing disturbing pictures with all of her family being stabbed to death and an ominous black shape, which he has labeled Thorn, lurking to the side. Before Kara goes back to bed, she notices a young man spying on her from his window across the street. This young man is none other than Tommy Doyle, the boy who Laurie Strode babysat and helped escape the clutches of Michael Myers that fateful night many years ago. Tommy, who is obsessed with Michael and solving why he commits murders certain Halloween nights, hears Jamie's plea and notices in the background a call for the arrival of a bus. Tracking the location to a bus station, just outside of Haddonfield, he follows a trail of blood left by Jamie to a downstairs bathroom where she has hidden her infant. He takes the baby home and names him Stephen, but not before randomly running into Dr. Loomis at the hospital. The two make an agreement to meet at the college festival that night. On Tommy's way home again, I don't know, he runs into Danny who once again sees the man in black following him. Kara, on her way home from a college class, finds the house seemingly empty. That's because earlier that day, Dr. Loomis stopped by to warn Kara's mother that Michael Myers was coming back to this house where his rage and memories are, and he would kill any inside it. She packs to leave, but it but is brutally murdered by Michael with an axe. Kara does end up finding Danny and Tommy in Danny's bedroom. Tommy convinces Kara to quit the house and stay across the street at Miss Blankenship's house where he lives and also Kara's brother's girlfriend lives as well. That night, Kara's abusive father arrives home only to be electrocuted and have his head exploded by Michael. Oof. Meanwhile, Tommy explains to Kara that old Celtic runes were used to either keep evil spirits at bay or unleash them. The most powerful evil one was that of Thorn, which he believes to be controlling Michael since the stars have aligned in the shape of that rune that very night. Oh. <laughs> later, <laughs> later, he heads out to meet Dr. Loomis at the festival, but quickly finds Michael has brutally myrtled. 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 Later. Myrtle the turtle. <laughs> later, he heads out to meet Dr. Loomis at the festival but quickly finds that Michael brutally murdered the radio disc jockey, Barry. Kara's brother, Tim, and his girlfriend, Beth, who organized the festival to bring back Halloween to Haddonfield since it was banned and it's been taboo, but we saw kids trick-or-treating earlier. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> 
go back to Tim's. Oh, so Tim and his girlfriend Beth go back to Tim's house to fornicate. Fornicate. Little do they know, Michael is waiting and brutally murders them both as Kara helplessly watches across the street. Out of the corner of her eye, she notices her son Danny is heading into the house. In a fit of panic, she runs over but grab a fire poker to use as a weapon. She's able to trip Michael down the stairs, thereby knocking him unconscious, but he quickly recovers and they're chased across the street back to Miss Blankenship's house where they find the man in black waiting for Danny and Miss Blankenship in on the man in black's cult. The man in black is none other than Dr. Wynn. Kara jumps out a window. Okay. Danny is taken. <laughs> just, just goes for it. Danny is taken and Loomis and Tommy are drugged. They wake up to find everyone gone, and Loomis knows exactly where they've been taken. They travel to Smith's Grove, where Loomis meets Wynne, who asks Loomis to accept the pure evil of Thorn and be the new head of the cult. But Loomis declines, so he is knocked unconscious. Tommy... Tommy... (laughs) Almost done. Almost done. Tommy searches for Kara, but finds an insane woman who says insane things before dying. He then finds Kara, but Kara is grabbed by Michael before being freed by Tommy. The two find a room to hide in, where they see Wynne saying a saying to a cultic Thorn member he can take off his garb now that Halloween is over. Okay, and Wynne, with a number of doctors, prepare for some kind of surgery. Kara and Tommy see Danny and the baby and grab them right before Michael stabs all of the surgeons to death. The group runs to a room where they see baby fetuses in green goo. Something like that. Tommy fights Michael, loses. Kara fights Michael, loses. Danny hides with the baby, and then Tommy hits Michael so much that goo splashes out of his face. I I think. Loomis saves Something the like that. Uh, through a through a series of flashes. It, it it's kind of hard to tell. Loomis saves them all. They ask Loomis to come with them. He says he has some business to attend to. Back in the sanitarium, we see Michael's mask lying on the ground. Possibly the screams of Dr. Loomis in the background, and a shot of a pumpkin sitting on the Strode slash Myers house with the flames stuffed out as credits roll. That probably made no sense because that plot is has so many plot holes and continuity errors and it's oh Oh dear, we'll get into it. I don't want to spend too much time on it. Let me now read right. plot number two for you. And this, like I said, this is the plot of the producer's cut. Like I said, some things will be a little similar, but you'll notice many differences. Right. Jamie Strode, the little girl from Halloween 4 and 5, Michael's niece, is now noticeably older and pregnant. Trapped in a bizarre underground hospital on October 30th, 1995, Jamie gives birth to a baby boy. See, six years ago, Michael was busted out of prison by the man in black, taken by his cultists, and Jamie, played played by Daniel Harris in the flashback, was abducted by them that night as well. Thanks to the aid of a nurse, Jamie escapes but is pursued by her deranged uncle. This is now in the present. The infamous Michael Myers. Michael tracks her to a bus stop where she calls into a radio station in the hopes Dr. Loomis will hear her plea and come to her aid. Loomis, now retired and healed of his burns from expensive skin grafts, does hear her plea. Now we know. Any other explanation? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Doctor Wynn drops by, who is the head of Smith's Grove Sanitarium, to let Sam know he is retiring and would like Loomis to take his place. 
Alas, Jamie is too late for Dr. Loomis to do anything. Jamie hops back in a truck, but is swiftly wrecked by Michael's van. She takes shelter in a barn, only to be stabbed by Michael. Also that night, in a house sold by Strode Realty, which we later learn is the original Myers house, which Laurie's father was showing in the first film, the man in black commands a young boy named Danny to kill for him. Believing it to be a bad dream, his mother, Kara Strode, sues her son back to sleep. Though she finds Danny is drawing disturbing pictures with all of her family being stabbed to death and an ominous black shape, which he has labeled Thorn, lurking to the side. Before Danny goes back to bed, she notices a young man spying on her from his window across the street. This young man is none other than Tommy Doyle, the boy who Laurie Strode babysat and helped escape the clutches of Michael Myers that fateful Halloween night many years ago. Tommy, who is obsessed with Michael and solving why he commits murder certain Halloween nights, hears Jamie's plea and notices in the background a call for the arrival of a bus. Tracking the location to a bus station just outside of Haddonfield, he follows a trail of blood left by Jamie to a downstairs bathroom where she has hidden her infant. He takes the baby home and names him Stephen, but not before running into Dr. Loomis at the hospital, who is there to check up on Jamie. The two make an agreement to meet at the college festival that night. On Tommy's way home again, still don't know why, he runs into Danny, who once again sees the man in black following him. Kira, on her way home, finds the house seemingly empty. That's because earlier that day, Dr. Loomis stopped by to warn Kara's mother that Michael Myers was coming back to this house where he would kill any inside it. She packs to leave, but is brutally murdered by Michael with an axe. Kara does end up finding Danny and Tommy in Danny's bedroom. Tommy convinces Kara to quit the house and stay across the street at Miss Blankenship's house, where he lives, and also uh, Kara's uh, brother's girlfriend lives as well. Back at the hospital, Jamie has a dream of her nightmarish capture and impregnation by her uncle Michael. After her dream, she is shot in the head by the man in black. That night, Kara's abusive father arrives home, only to be electrocuted by Michael. Meanwhile, Tommy explains the to Kara that old Celtic runes were used to either keep evil spirits at bay or unleash them. The most powerful was that of Thorn, which he believes to be controlling Michael, since the stars have aligned in the shape of that rune that very night. Later, he heads out to meet Dr. Loomis at the festival, but quickly finds Michael brutally murdered the uh, disc jockey, Barry, who says he is going to Michael's house. Kara's brother, Tim, and his girlfriend, Beth, who organized the festival to bring back Halloween to Haddonfield, since it was apparently banned, but people still celebrate it, and it's not taboo, but it is. They go back to Tim's house to fornicate. Little di- <laughs> just can't help but laugh. Little little do they know, Michael is waiting and brutally murders them both, as Kara helplessly watches across the street. Out of the corner of her eye, she notices her son Danny is heading into the house. In a fit of panic, she runs over but collects herself to grab a fire poker to use as a weapon. She's able to trip Michael down the stairs, thereby knocking him unconscious, but he quickly recovers and they are chased across the street, back to Miss Blinkenship's house, where they find the man in black waiting for Danny and Miss Blinkenship, who is in on the man in black's cult. And the man in black is none other than Dr. Wynn. Carrie jumps out a window, Danny is taken, and Loomis and Tommy are drugged. They wake up to find everyone gone, and Loomis knows exactly where they've been taken. They travel to Smith's Grove Sanitarium, where Loomis meets Wynn, who asks Loomis to accept to accept being the guardian or the keeper of Thorn and the guardian of the new Michael, which will be Danny. But Loomis declines, so he is knocked unconscious. Tommy finds Kara tied up on the altar of Thorn. With the sacrifice of Danny's mother and Jamie's infant, Michael will lose all of his power and Danny will be imbued with the murderous, invincible powers of Thorn. 
Tommy, disguised as a cultist, takes Wynn captive, but once he is pursued by Michael, Tommy, Kara, Danny, and the baby flee. Loomis helps Kara, Danny, and the baby escape while Tommy pulls out his runes, cuts his hand, and calls out the word Sam Hain, which disables Michael. The group leave the sanitarium while Loomis returns inside to find Michael lying on the ground. But once he pulls off the mask, he realizes Michael has escaped in the man in black's clothes, and it is Dr. Wynn dressed as Michael. For his final act, Wynn grabs Loomis, passing the curse of Thorn and powers of guardianship onto Loomis, as seen with the appearance of a Thorn tattoo and blood-curdling scream. Back to the Strode slash Myers house, a jack-o'-lantern is extinguished as credits roll. Ah, yes. Much, much better? Uh, better, I'll say that much. It's it, At least it explains. I'm going to say that too. Yeah, at least it gives a lot of answers to so many yeah. plot holes and contrivances. Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, now, well, before we go too far, I, I kind of do kind of want to talk about the the uh, the production of this movie. Uh, I, won't sp- I don't want to spend too much time on it, uh, but it is very interesting because the reason why it took some it took them six years to release this movie was because they had some legal issues and turns out Miramax or uh, under the label of Dimension Films, which I've always associated with Spy Kids to this day, oh. um, <laughs> they they bought them out. They got them out of whatever legal issues they were in or I, didn't, I couldn't find the details as to what exactly was going on. But all I know is that Miramax and Dimension Films, they got the rights to Halloween and that unfortunately causes some issues because now we have later on we'll have some studio interference into the different cuts uh going into it a bit more uh 1994 they eventually got uh the guy that wrote the draft um whatever his ferens and he had as it states in here as the wiki article he had about 10 drafts but as corbin said he had about 12 drafts possibly um so that was part of the issue. He just kept writing and writing and writing, kept going, coming up with new stuff. Uh, he had to get a draft, a final draft done before October of, 19, of 94, which began in June. So he had a few months to write a final draft because they began shooting in Salt Lake City in October. So he had to finish by then. Uh, anyways, his plan was to bridge four and five with one and two with uh by doing that with thorn um one draft uh it says here that one draft this is where the spoilers come in one draft had jamie living until the climax where she was killed by myers working script trimmed down jamie's character to adhere to the curse of thorn subplot and also at one moment uh or at one time it was thought to have the entire town of Haddonfield a part of this cult um anyways so they screened it and uh, then the audiences had a negative reaction. They didn't like that Loomis got the Curse of Thorn on him. And so Dimension Films said, okay. So they took it back and rushed it into, post-produc- into production. And they did a bunch of reshoots. Uh, they replaced Myos with a, a new guy in a few scenes. They did the read of the music. They added in a bunch of random stuff. They decided that they wanted to be quicker paced. So they cut out... Uh, but um, some details and inserted them in, inserted this rain flashing stuff out of nowhere just to kind of qu- uh, speed up the pace, things like that. Uh, so yeah, then 
they wanted did want to get the original guy of Tommy on and original Jamie on, but they well, Jamie did it because she didn't have enough money, but Tommy didn't do it because he didn't have an agent, so they couldn't get a hold of him, so they got Paul Brett instead. Uh, and yeah, so it's this movie's had quite the interesting production because at one moment, um, one of the producers kind of became the second unit director when he was totally not supposed to be. Um, all kinds of stuff. Donald Pleasance began, was ill during filming and he died before the uh, theatrical cut was released. Or maybe it was the producer's cut. I can't remember which one. Um, so, yeah. It's interesting. And then, at the very end, we had a legal issue between the two different cuts because Dimension wanted to release the theatrical cut and the pr- the director or the writer uh, wanted to release the pr- what is known as producer's cut. And so they had a bit of a legal issue with that. And then they both said, no, we're doing the theatrical cut. Um, and it was just all around. The production of this movie was just kind of a mess. Things just happened. And they had to get it out by a certain date. And they would, couldn't get to that certain date. It was all kinds of crazy. Yes. So Farron's the writer of the script, his original vision is severely compromised in the theatrical version and possibly even somewhat in the producer's cut, although that is closer to it. And there are elements that Farron's didn't even write because like Alan said, the producer, I believe it was Paul Freeman. He just kind of took it upon himself to be second unit director and even the director himself, they started rewriting, changing things, doing things they shouldn't be doing, which caused Dimension's parent company, Miramax, to step in and start. They started changing things and demanding different reshoots or things be done differently. It kind of became right. a really big nightmare, and that's why it took six years to do. Uh, I did find it was interesting. There was this subplot of the Curse of Thorn, where the entire town of Haddonfield was in collusion with the cult. And right. uh, Akkad wanted to use that for the series' seventh installment. And for those of you who don't know, that never happened, but we will get onto that a little later. Now, as for why Daniel Harris didn't come back, she really wanted to come back. And of course, that would make sense because it's kind of her trilogy of movies here. And she was even right. going to go so far as to legally emancipate herself to be in the movie. Be- well, she did, actually. Yes, she did. She was 17 at the time, which would still make her a minor. And in order to do this movie, she would need to kind of emancipate herself as an adult. Well, apparently, they were only going to pay her $1,000 for her work. And that was not even enough money to cover the emancipation costs that she had already spent. It was a big mess, and nobody of the higher-up stepped in. It seemed like nobody really cared. It's unfortunate. I really feel like from what I've observed, she really got the shaft, and she eventually just dropped out of the project. And it was a really big offense to her, and I don't blame her. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, it's they even said... uh the writer and uh, I think it was the, also one other person, they were like, we can't do right. anything about this. We'd love to have you on, but we literally can't do anything about this. They were only going to have her on for like a week of shooting anyways. But even then, she was really willing to uh, 
jump on as uh, as her character once more to finish off her role. Because, yeah, like you said, this is kind of her trilogy of movies. And then they decided that they were only going to pay her $1,000 for a week's worth of work. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, and like Alan mentioned, Paul Rudd was not the initial choice for Tommy Doyle. They wanted Brian Andrews, who played him in the movie, and he would have been probably the the perfect age at this point. He technically would have been older than probably this Tommy Doyle here. Anyways, it's like Alan said, they couldn't. Fi- he didn't have an agent, so they had no way of contacting him, which is kind of funny. Yeah, that is kind of also. Funny. <laughs> I mean, it's sad, but yeah, well, yeah, it's it's unfortunate. Yeah. But anyways, also Farron's originally urged the producers to cast Christopher Lee as Doctor Wynn. And that would have been great, even though I've got my own idea who I would have preferred to be Dr. Wynn. I'll get into that in just a while, because every time we see him, I'm like expecting this guy to be him. And I'm like, it's not him. Dang it. Right. I do know that Christopher Lee did say that he was on. He he did regret his decision to not hop on the film. Yes. And also, um, he was originally Carpenter's initial choice for Dr. Loomis in the original Halloween, so that's kind of right. why they wanted him to come on for this. Also, so with the test screens being incredibly poor, they rushed back into production and started doing a bunch of reshoots, but one of the major problems is is that Donald Pleasance had died uh, eight months before yeah. the release of the movie donald pleasance had passed away for quite a while and that is why in the end of the theatrical cut eh, he's basically not there at all and it is so quick it, it it's because he's gone so they can't do anything with him and it's like alan mentioned earlier michael lerner replaced george wilbur as michael therefore he looks different yeah. in the film like You'll notice towards the end, he's a lot slimmer. He's not as bulky. Um, right. Causes some uh, pretty big continuity errors. It does. And it should be noted, uh, Farron's said, the stylized flash cuts prominent in the final theatrical cut of Halloween of this movie were not originally intended, and he likened the style of the final product to an MTV video rather than a Halloween film. Also, like I mentioned earlier, the score done by Alan Hayworth was still there, but it was completely redone to be like a very MTV sounding score. Uh, it's it's bad. Yeah, electric guitars, drums. Uh, hmm. <laughs> I don't know who I don't know who thought that this was a good idea. Uh, but I don't Well, work. and it's really crazy because even in post-production, they were still – it's supposed to be post-production, but they're still filming scenes. They're still redoing things. They're even writing – rewriting the script on set during certain scenes. It This is complete yeah. chaos. And then especially once the studio executives step in, we all know how that goes. This is a classic case in point of when studios interfere or producers or other people – that really shouldn't be interfering, the vision ultimately becomes incredibly compromised and you're left with a product that has so many plot holes and issues. It's really obvious it's messed up. Right. Yeah, this is a clear case of somebody... This is, yeah, this is when uh, I I guess... I, I can't even begin to wrap my mind around why the studio would even want 
Halloween. It really doesn't make that much money anyways. Right. And maybe a little bit. Uh, I guess they were hoping that they could pull it out. I don't know. I guess that's really it is the studio once they found out, uh, once things had gone too far, that the whoever they had planned on doing whatever tasks were not exactly listening to what they were supposed to do, they just had to step in. Uh, yeah, clear case of studio interference as well as just plain ignorance uh, to what what the what to what needs to be done versus what is the view of the writer or whatever. So once the film was released on home media in October 1996, there started to surface these bootleg copies dubbed the producer's cut, and this has been notorious, infamous, whatever word you want to use for a very long time. Me being a Halloween fan, I've always heard of this producer's cut. I've always heard people have seen bootleg copies and it's great. It fixes all of these issues. This is the version that should have been out there. And for a really long time, it was pushed that the studio would release this producer's cut. But that kind of seemed like a dream. Therefore, the only way you could see it was going onto eBay and getting bootleg VHSs or going to the dark corners of conventions and getting yourself an illegal copy. Well, that all changed because in October 2013, the producer's cut was publicly screened. And I'm assuming they had done a little bit of cleanup, but the original producer's cut was, it's on VHS, mind you, but even still, it was horribly grainy. I've seen still images from it. It it looks absolutely horrible, but the producer's cut was officially released on September 2014, 18 years after the original home video release. Yeah, took them long enough. There was a legal thing. I think I mentioned this earlier. There's a legal thing between the two companies. Night, uh, whatever company Mustafa Akkad was a part of, and uh, Dimension Films, they they really both of them wanted to release two different cuts of the movie. But since Dimension had the legal rights, technically they didn't want to until now. And it was kind of a kind of a. Uh, it was a little crazy when it was released in 2014 because the only way that you could get it was a part of the 14 disc box set but and that was about 120 bucks but thankfully a year later a year later for pete's sake they did release the standalone theatrical blu-ray with producers on the same blu-ray disc and like I said, that came out in 2015. So yes, now you can officially go and watch the producer's cut legally and you don't have to shell out 120 bucks. Just do it. Right. So, I mean, eventually they got around to it. And this is the cut that it sounds like every uh, Halloween fan much prefers is the producer's cut. Uh, kind of sounds like a little bit like Blade Runner, but uh, more legal issues. Uh, and there aren't six cuts there's just two true okay well let's go ahead and jump into this movie so i think what we'll do is we will talk about we'll kind of go along with the theatrical cut and then when there is differences with the producer's cut we'll bring those up as well 
Okay, so the theatrical cut opens with a very weird montage, lots of slashing and knives and pumpkin faces. It's this comes out a lot more as oh, the movie yes, goes along. It does. And we get big <sighs> zoom letters. Well, it's like a big zoomed in title and there's no numerical titling and then a yeah. subtitle. It's already starting off on the wrong foot and I've noticed yeah. Halloween 5 did kind of do the jack-o'-lantern in its own way. Halloween 4 seemed to pretty much mm-hmm. ditch it all together, and this one seems to ditch it also. Both cuts, yeah. There are no hollow, no jack-o'-lanterns in the, in the opening for either cut. It's just gone now. Okay, so... I yeah, get- this opening is... I, for the theatrical, is no, doesn't work. It sets the completely wrong tone right off the bat of just, ha-ha, and just throws everything at you. It's just, it's it's really kind of crazy. And it this, these slashing, random slashing inserts come back much later. Uh, yeah, this is disgusting. <laughs> okay, so I got to know when you're watching the theatrical cut and then you see... This lady being wheeled in this weird area and she's pregnant. What are your thoughts? Do you know this is Jamie? I am confused. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. The only thing in my mind that's happening is, I, wait a minute, this feels like Rosemary's Baby, which comes back more than once in this movie. Mm. But this is, I'm so confused in the first couple minutes of this movie. Eventually, I kind of... It explains it to me, but this opening is like, uh, what is happening? What is Halloween? Yes, and they're, they do provide a monologue overlay oh. where he kind of explains everything in his weird voice, and you got to watch some weird rituals, maybe It's very, very weird opening. Yeah, this narration from Paul Rudd is not uh, Loomis does a better job at it when the producer's yep. cut. It feels a bit better in that one. But, I mean, do we really need it? I mean, sure, we can explain Jamie's stuff, but do we really need this at all, this narration? Because I don't feel like we do. I don't feel like it really serves much of a purpose except to explain what's already going to be explained later. Well, I'm going to throw it out here. I think Paul Rudd is really bad in this movie his line delivery is awful he sounds horrible his acting is horrible i am really shocked he is what he is today if this is his first role and it's terrible yeah it's clear that paul rudd compared to this role and his new stuff he's had quite a bit of experience and now he actually knows how to act in this movie he's not like you said not very good he kind of has He's playing off of the cliche stalker role, but instead of, you know, maybe going into more depth with it, they kind of just do it on the surface level and they don't go anywhere. Yeah, I agree. He is not very good in this role, uh, which is unfortunate, kind of, I guess, for I mean, for this movie. It, I mean, for this movie, it isn't that bad, but if you compare it to any other movie, it's it's terrible. Well, the producer's cut does a much better job of opening the movie. The titling is better. Yes. It's different. A We also get a uh, kind of a date at the bottom of the screen like we have in more of the original movies. It takes place October 30th, 1995, which does give us kind of a date. 
And yeah, like you said, it is Dr. Loomis doing the voiceover, which is much better than Paul Rudd. Also, we do get a flashback, which I was really grateful for because honestly, Halloween 5 and Halloween 6 don't even feel connected, at least the theatrical versions anyway. Oh, yeah, there is very, very little connection. This is a completely different story. I would It's a stretch to call this a trilogy. Uh, with the but I really guy. did enjoy seeing this flashback with Daniel Harris on October 31st, 1989. It shows Michael being broken out. It shows ultimately right. how that was concluded because that was a cliffhanger for Halloween 5, and it's completely dropped for the theatrical cut of Halloween 6. And <laughs> just like, okay. Yeah kind of a kind of a, a little bit of a retcon they just decide or maybe it's just they just decide not to explain it uh so yeah oh, it leaves me the confusion. theatrical cut retcons so much it's ridiculous anyways if you're gonna yeah. do the math then jamie should be about 14 years old because in halloween 5 it is said she is about eight years old eight plus six is 14 yeah so huh uh, there's a couple of things wrong with that. There is, but she's she's not. Clearly in the movie, they're trying to pass her off as being yeah. 18, 19, 20, I don't know, mid to, mid-20s maybe? Right, yeah. She definitely looks older than, I guess, what she's supposed to be. Uh, 14 and pregnant is uh, interesting for Halloween, but okay. Uh, but yeah, she doesn't look 14. She looks, yeah, like you said, more like 17, 18, uh, which is more adult. Makes it a bit, a bit better. Also, th- we do have Alan Hayworth's original music in the producer's cut, which I got to say, yes. I absolutely love. It really makes it feel like the very original Halloween. And the theatrical music stuff is just horrible. It's disgusting. I can't even stand it. It's such a fall. Yeah, Alan Hayworth's. It, it, okay, it sounds much better than the electric guitar version of the theme song. Uh, And I would much prefer his more cinematic score than whatever else the new composer or musical department director came up with. Although I don't think that it's a very good score all the way around, it feels... They don't really do much with it. It's just kind of there. They don't really bring it down and have different motifs with it like they did, I think, in 4, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, 4 and 5, they did, they did something like that. None of that here. It's all kind of this, the same thing over and over again. It does build suspense when it needs to, and it guesses that really well uh, for what it is. But, yeah, nothing really big with the score here, which is unfortunate uh, that that has to be the case. I would agree. There's not much done with the score. The only thing I can compliment it on is that it does provide those callbacks to John Carpenter's Halloween. Right. But I mean, we also had that in four and five. It's, uh, I mean, it's not, it's more of the theme song for the Halloween series just in general with the piano. Uh, I would just would have loved to see more implementation of different kinds of motifs or messing with it a little bit. They do some stuff in uh, in this movie every once in a while, um, but it really isn't anything of note. I would agree. There are a few themes from the first one that are not used in 4 and 5 that are used in this one that I, I think almost like everything John Carpenter created in the first Halloween is used in the producer's cut of this one. Mm-hmm. At least it seems that way. 
So right. I am glad to see that because the music and sound design in the theatrical cut is bizarre why they even did yeah. this. This theatrical cut has serious issues with tone. Uh, there are two completely different tones between the producer's cut and the theatrical cut. And it's very clear that two different people edited this movie, and which is the case because Dimension Films popped in and decided to edit the theat- what we now know as the theatrical cut. Um, it was all under their eyes, and you can tell that something is just not right with this theatrical cut. It just, it's just, it paints the wrong picture, and it's just, a, it, for me, it just kind of makes this feeling of, okay, this is kind of gross. So, because the editing in the theatrical cut is honestly horrendous. So what do you think of, we get this scene of this new boy living in this house sold by Strode Realty, apparently that's still a thing, and the man in black is holding a knife, and he's got a weird voice, and he says, kill for him, Danny. What are your thoughts? Uh, once again, I am very confused. Who is Danny? Why is the man in black talking to him? Things of that nature. And it kind... They don't... They, they explain it a bit more in the producer's cut than they do in the theatrical cut, but only kind of makes it a bit more sense in that cut than the other one. It's odd, and I don't really see the purpose for it, but they kind of give one in the more one, more of one in the producer's cut. See, this is the big issue. This is what Halloween 5 should have done with Jamie. The man in black should have been influencing Jamie because in the end of 4, she seemingly stabs her stepmother to death, or not stepmother, adopted right. mother. And then when Halloween 5, you're expecting her to be the killer, and that's what she thought as well. But she's not. But then in Halloween 6, they're like, okay, we messed it up in 5, let's make this new kid, Danny, be the killer. And, okay, and they're like, Michael has to kill the last of his kin. This might only be explained in the producer's cut. He has to kill the last of his kin, so then why impregnate Jamie with a baby? Please explain that to me because I am beyond confused in that aspect as to, okay, yes, if you need to kill the last of kin, sure. But why did, yeah, why did Michael impregnate Jamie? It doesn't make any sense to me. So in the theatrical cut, the connections between Jamie and the baby and Kara Strode and Danny don't make any sense. It's. I'm very confused yes. why any of this is connected, and I gotta say I'm also very confused why. Okay, I I might be getting a little too far ahead of myself here by talking about some of this, but just the motivations in this movie are extremely confused and contradict each other, because they did have the chance to kill Jamie, but they didn't. Instead, they impregnated her. They let her escape. Is the house still a thing? Because the house was kind of a big thing in Halloween 5, where Loomis is like, this is where it all began. This is where your rage was. They go back to the house in this one, and it's kind of a big thing, but then that's dropped for the third act of the movie. It's really only kind of glossed over in, I guess, act two. Uh, Like I said, I feel like we're going to talk about this a little more because... I don't know. There's still more things to talk about. I'm just getting ahead of myself. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, since we're kind of here, uh, the dad. Biff um, from Back to the Future? <laughs> looks like him. It does look like him, yes. Uh, Acts like him. That looks like a blonde wig. <laughs> regardless, though. Regardless, though, the wig. Uh, okay. It's amazing to me how one line can change an entire character's motivation. Because in the producer, no, in the theatrical cut, he's just super annoying and is, f- for one reason jerk. or another, is decides that he's just going to be uh, just like the, the abusive father, the emotionally abusive father, right? Right. And, and there's really no reason at all. He kind of mentions it when he yells at Danny, um, but it doesn't fully explain itself. In the producer's cut, there is one take and one line from the dad where he is event- basically mentions that uh, she leaves for five years and then comes back with a kid. And for me, that was like, oh, it makes so much sense why he would act this way because it's clear that he doesn't want his daughter around. He is ashamed that to call her his daughter in the producer's cut. In the theatrical right. cut, skips that scene completely, and so he just comes off as just some jerk for no reason at all. And I can't, I literally can't stand his character in the theatrical cut. But in the producer's cut, because of that one small line, the whole thing makes sense. And I'm like, okay, I can actually get behind his character. I mean, I like it. But I can at least get behind his character and understand where he's coming from. I mean, yeah, he's still insanely overdramatic. But it at least makes sense. It's astonishing to me how one line can change that much. You're right. His character motivation is more fleshed out in the producer's cut. We get a scene of him pulling a picture of her out of his drawer, saying something about her being his little girl. He is getting drunk. Right. So clearly he has lots of issues with that. He talks more with his wife about it. And I think that's just kind of a testament to the producer's cut in general. Character motivations are, I think, much more fleshed out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, it's all very cut so quickly that these are just cardboard cutout characters. Oh, this one's the bad one. This one's the abusive one. This this one is the pothead. You know, uh, this one is the pregnated teen or whatever so i would agree and uh, let's kind of talk about character introductions as well for this movie sure okay paul rudd's character has got a weird introduction we don't even know who he is he's just seemingly a pervert listening to things and they're all centrally tied together and introduced because they're listening to back talk with barry oh my word oh Somehow, everybody, everybody in Haddonfield is listening to this one station at this particular time. This is this is a, a an occurrence in both cuts, which is yep. you can't get away from that. Uh, somehow, everyone's listening to this one radio station at this one time to kickstart the entire plot. <sighs> yeah. So this is how everybody ties together because Paul Rudd's listening to it. Dr. Loomis is listening to it. Thankfully, they explain why he's listening to it, at least in the producer's cut. Right. Because in the theatrical, I'm like, no way he would ever listen to this guy. This is crazy. And then, of course, it's magically playing in the abandoned bus station for Jamie to hear and call in. 
and I'm trying to think if anybody else is listening to it as well. Barry is a friend of Kara's brother, Tim, from Chicago, and Tim and Beth get in contact with him. to He will come back and give some life into the festival of Halloween for the town of Haddonfield. It's all stupidly contrived and, like, so forcefully connected. And they try and play up this Barry character so much. They, like, do, like, these almost, like, product placements for this fictional radio show. Right. By showing his van and he plays over and over again. I I can't even understand why he is in this movie. What is the point? Ultimately, he dies and there's no point. There is, yeah, like you said, there's nothing to his character. He, his death, and we'll get to that in a sec, but his death means nothing to me when he does die. Uh, it creates one kind of spooky moment with the kid. It, I do, okay, he isn't my least favorite character because that would be given, that award would be given to the dad, in the, and at least in the theatrical cut. In the producer's cut, uh, I would say he is my least favorite character because he is there and Rui doesn't really do much. He has, he has, he's like you said, forced into the story for the sake of motive, for the sake of plot device, plot convenience, things like that. He doesn't exactly go anywhere, and it's just annoying that we have to waste time on him, in my own mind. It is a really big annoyance, and the whole setup of this movie is completely ridiculous because there's absolutely no way Michael could have found Jamie at the bus station, and then he crashes her into the barn, and immediately the theatrical cut sets itself up as it's going to be this really gruesome, over-the-top, violent movie because, of course, Halloween has to play catch-ups with all the other slashers, gore movies. And I found the violence in this movie to be distasteful and just pointless. In the theatrical version, they ex- they excised it in yeah. the producer's cut. I, I Honestly, that was something I, I would enjoyed more. And was hoping that they would at least explain themselves a bit better in the producer's cut is the level of violence because it feels like they've taken a step up from five, which was kind of lacking. We both said, um, so there are there are moments when the kills are like, okay, finally we're getting more creative with how Michael is killing again because we missed that in five and four didn't really have much to it either. Right. And so we're getting back into more of the creative side and Michael using things around him to to create to kill these people. And it kind of does it in, in the theatrical cut, but then they kind of take a step back in terms of showing you more in the producer's cut. Um, but that being said, I found the producer's cut to be more impactful when those kills happened yeah. versus the level of gruesomeness that is in the theatrical cut. So it's kind of two sides of the same coin. Either you get... Very gruesome uh, deaths, but take a step back in effectiveness, or you take a step back in gruesomeness and a step up in effectiveness. That's interesting that they chose to do that. To me, it seemed like a lot of this was just for shock value or just to be vulgar and gruesome because they focus on it so much and it's seemingly so over the top, especially later with the dad's death and his head exploding. Yeah, like, okay, that was one, yes, it is more gruesome, but effectiveness, that's just stupid. My only guess is they saw scanners and were like, oh, yeah, let's 
recreate that and have the head blow up. Anyways, also, I found it really funny how uh, Donald Pleasance is probably like, I'm too old to put makeup on. I don't want to sit up in a makeup chair. Or they either had a horrible makeup department that couldn't swing it. So I love how they, in the theatrical, it's not explained at all. He yeah. is simply more and more regenerated and healed with each movie. But in this one, he explains about the skin grafts. So I was like, okay, at least they explain it. Yeah, my, what I wrote down in my notes, uh, let me fa- find out what I wrote down. Okay, in my notes, I said, uh, I said he had plastic surgery and skin grafts. More like we didn't have the budget. More like we didn't have the budget to, the, to do the makeup. Right. Uh, yeah, for some reason they decided not to continue with uh, his scarred up left side of his face. I don't know why we didn't go on with that. Maybe he even rejected that idea or something. He didn't want makeup. I don't know. I just get it. Just is kind of silly that they decide that the best explanation is plastic surgery and skin grafts, and then they just move on. So, do you think it was better that Jamie is killed off pretty much in the beginning of the theatrical cut, or in the producer's cut, she yeah. survives for quite a while? What do you think? Like, what does that do for each cut? Or what do you think is better? Yeah. I think it gives more of a motivation to Loomis's character for Jamie to survive longer. Not much because they don't really they don't really show her until there's okay, there's only one more scene with Jamie uh compared to the theatrical cut and that's right before she dies and then when she does die. Um but it does once again give more more uh motivation to Loomis's character. Uh, to really go after Michael because now, yes, he is going so far that is very, very, very possible that the, he will succeed and Loomis can't have that. Being, you know, the face and the embodiment of good versus Michael, who's the complete opposite, the, the embodiment of evil. So, yeah, I found that to be better in the producer's cut than the theatrical cut. Um, but for some reason, they decided to cut it out, and I don't really know why. It did make more sense to me to keep Jamie alive because, like you said, it does provide a better motivation for Dr. Loomis. And with eliminating her so quickly, I, I don't know. It, it just seems – it just seemed very odd. I was very surprised to see it when I first saw the movie, and I was shocked. Uh, this one made more sense, but then at the same time, it doesn't make sense because why would he just stab her and leave her alive? Right, and – not only that, but uh, it is kind of it kind of turns me off because we spent two movies developing Jamie as a character, and then the beginning of this movie, at least in that theatrical cut, she's killed off. Well, I guess both versions she's essentially killed off uh, in the beginning. So it, it's kind of just like it's a big turnoff because we spent so much time developing her, and now we're just kind of throwing her away and and change for another character, which. Even then, I would consider Jamie to be the better choice because we already have something. We already have a foundation for her character versus having to do something completely new. So, yeah, it doesn't make any sense how Michael would just decide to leave her kind of alive. Um, I don't know why Michael decided otherwise, but maybe if I if I was, I can stretch and say that maybe they're trying to more of the humanization of Michael. He isn't exactly pure evil. He left. The girl that he impregnated alive 
But I can't, I'm not going to buy that because that even to me is just really giving it the benefit well, of the Well, the other thing that does work is it gives a reason why Dr. Loomis is at the hospital. He's there to see Jamie because in the theatrical cut, somehow Tommy Doyle recognizes Loomis from the back of his head immediately right and right. i'm like why are why is he Who hasn't been seen for years by the way too. oh right he only saw him briefly as far as i know briefly running out of the house across the street in the first movie anyways right. and then why is there this random encounter thankfully the producer's cut explains that because i'm like why is he at the hospital and what is going on here that's solved so that does provide more continuity so and, okay, I gotta say, I really love Jamie's, like, dream she has of being led into Smith's Grove, into the basement. There's that really creepy shot of the man in black with his hands up going along yeah. really quickly. I thought that was well done. And it does confirm that um, Michael impregnated Jamie. So was there any question of right. that for you watching the theatrical? Were you wondering who is Jamie's baby? Yes, uh, I was also kind of just thinking maybe it's just just like the main character uh, later on that we get to know from the beginning. It's just like her just impregnated just because I didn't exactly think of the age thing. But it does remind me, once again, very much reminds me of Rosemary's Baby, uh, that the spawn is created by, a, well, in, the, in Rosemary's Baby, it's, from the devil right. but this one is from michael who is the embodiment of evil you could relate that to the devil anyways i just got i got huge rosemary's baby vibes uh off of this movie but yeah uh, interesting that it is an interesting question who is jamie's who gave birth to that baby or who helped birth the baby and ultimately i don't think the producers cut completely explains it they mention something in the end like because of your mother and the innocence of this baby you will now be imbued with the powers of thorn maybe they need an adult male female she's she's not a virgin usually it's a virgin seems like and yeah. this baby yeah it's just really glossed over but at least we get a little bit more whereas the theatrical cut it's everything's pointless yeah, and the theatrical, they just don't even try to explain it. They just said, okay, this must be this must be kind of pointless. And so they take it out of the movie and they just move on. And then now it's com like, uh, like the writer said, it's just confusing. Right. Okay, so we get introduced to this family at this really bizarre breakfast table scene. We know these are now a new set of Strodes. My only conclusion are these are cousins of the Strodes. Tried to do my own little thought in my head of how they could right. possibly be related to strode reality and whatnot so yeah they're strodes okay so we've got a punk teenage son a really conservative mom uh this college age daughter i guess and the dad who's a jerk and he hates his grandson it's very bizarre yeah, very bizarre. Uh, can you explain to me why... How... Well, this might be getting ahead. I'll wait until we get to that moment. Uh, but yeah, very bizarre cast of characters here. Uh, now, it is interesting that when the, okay, when the table scene happens and Dad gets mad at his daughter, uh, when Jamie... Or not Jamie, but when the main character, 
walks outside to like go to school or whatever and is saying goodbye to her kid to Danny she says you know grandpa didn't really hurt me right I just found that to be very interesting the producers cut that they had this level of uh, just a small detail of you know the mom still protecting the kid uh, in the face of blatantly being abused yeah i did like that addition because it provides more family dynamics because the theatrical cut completely glossed over this situation where danny nearly could have potentially killed his grandfather because the grandfather was physically abusing the daughter at the breakfast table yeah it's a fairly traumatic family scene and it's immediately just like hey have a great day at school champ see you later and right. the producer's cut does spend more time exploring those family dynamics. It doesn't flesh it out too much, but you're right. It's a nice addition to the family dynamics. Right. And then right after she says that to Danny, it then cuts to what I already mentioned this, but it cuts to the line of the dad basically saying, well, she leaves her five yeah. years and comes back pregnant and comes up with a kid, you know, very interesting stuff. Why? And I don't, I, I can't begin to wrap my brain around why they decided to cut this from the theatrical cut. It just feels like they really didn't care for substance. And so they went for viewer retention instead. I guess so. I guess that makes sense. And that was my question watching the entire producer's cut is if this was really the cut that they originally had. Why in the world did they not put that out? Just because it had a best bad test screening, it's better to put out something that actually has continuity and character motivations than something that has almost no continuity at all and it's just riddled right. with errors, it seems like. Yeah, my only guess is money, 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 because this will keep the audience in the seats longer, this quicker... Uh, more scarier version of this movie. That's the only thing I can think of is just viewer retention. This will keep the audience in the seats uh, to have to keep things going, to keep it moving. And versus the producer's cut, which is much paced much slower and right. takes its time, which is not not the thing with the theatrical cut. I was glad to see that those horrible jump scare noises were gone in the producer's cut. Yes, thank you, <laughs> thank you for removing them. They were so stupid. Did you notice how slowly uh, Beth and Tim were driving down the street as they picked him up? Yeah. Like, going like, I know. <laughs> we're going to school. <laughs> we'll get there eventually. Mm -hmm. Anyways, uh, okay, so they find Jamie in the uh, barn, and depending on the cut, you know, she's either dead or alive, with a giant rune symbol burned into the haystacks. I. Don't even know how you do that and don't light the hay on fire. Who did it? How did it happen? And how does Donald Pleasance know it's his mark? Since when and, when and how does he know this? Yeah, lots of questions here. My question is, oh, my biggest question, which still remains a question, and we can talk about the reasons for this a bit in a second, but why does Michael need a symbol? It just kind of feels like okay so what you know that he burned not only has a symbol but burns it into the haystack because he needs to mark that he's back I, I i can't even begin to understand why michael has a symbol uh this scene the extended version does explain a couple more things but in all in all it's just kind of like okay so 
I do like the insertion of new scenes in the producer's cut where there's the classic music of Kara looking around the campus. She is very kind of on the edge because of these things happening with Danny, her son. Right. And we also get shots of her walking home and she's like, it looks like she's wearing almost the same green sweater and she's also wearing a cardigan Lori was wearing. Same music. I think these scenes are great because it sets the atmosphere of the movie. Like you said, it really slows it down and it doesn't make it this horribly cut, fast-paced movie that is almost not even recognizable as a Halloween. Right, movie. yeah. It, it slows it down to a level where it – well, in, in what it's supposed to try, it's trying to do is get under the skin of the audience and be like, oh, this is spooky. You know, This scene is, like you said, a classic – uh, way of showing that is yeah they slow it down it's not like these random quick takes of slashing and stuff like that it's very much a let's slow it down let's get is explain a bit more why uh why this happened or things small things like that it really does help with the effectiveness of the fi- of the final product with this producer's cut versus the theatrical cut which doesn't even try that One of the other things that I was not pleased to see come back in this movie, and it's not, it just, it's not well explained and it contradicts itself. Let me just get into it. So Loomis decides to break and enter into the Strode house, aka the Myers house, which looks 100% different from the fifth movie. Once again, we've changed houses. That place was. Yeah, and that place was ready for – it was ready to be condemned. It should have been condemned and destroyed, but now it's looks pretty good to me, even though they're, like, remodeling it. Yeah. Anyways, Loomis comes and says this house is sacred to him, all his memories, his rage. Well, the rage part ties back to number five, but this is confusing because he's always been after his family and their friends, but not his house. The family was established in one and two, and the house scenario was really just retconned in five. The plot is contradicting itself because if Michael just wants the house, then he should go there first. But if he wants Jamie and the baby, then what does he want with the house? The house, in its various iterations, has been shown in all five movies so far, but has never taken on this new meaning until the end of five, which made more sense than has it being continued in the sixth movie. Yeah. Uh, Interesting stuff. Why doesn't Michael come back to this house just right away? It takes up until the next scene when he finally arrives there and then leaves again. So I don't really understand why we decided that... Okay, for as big of a deal as they made it in basically all the rest of the movies, excluding three, because we don't talk about that movie, um, the house is a very big deal. And in this one, they just go, meh, and they throw it behind him. Like, it is no big deal, and after, really after this scene with Loomis, it is never brought up ever again that this house is for Michael, and that he comes back because all of his stuff is here, his rage, and all that, all that kind of stuff. It's, through it all way, there is no conclusion for it. This is because they have a first act and a third act that loosely ties together, they have no idea what to do for the second act. They have no idea how to meet their runtime. So they're like, oh, yeah, we kind of talked about the house in five. They're living in the house. We're kind of talking about it. Let's just make up some bogus plot and waste all of our time about the house being some special significance where his rage and memories and everything began right. with him. It has nothing to do with the movie. And like I said, he's either after the house or he's after Jamie. 
but why would he be after the house? They provide no explanation. And of course, like I said, he hangs around the house to kill all of the Strodes. It's immediately dropped and we go back to Smith's Grove Sanitarium. Right. Honestly, I was like, maybe they would, it would make more sense if instead of it being at Smith's Grove, it could be somewhere inside the Myers house. I would, I could go with that because that would probably tie them closer together, but they don't. Right. And somehow, by some miracle, nobody in this family knows that this house was Michael Myers' house. Nobody explains to the family, and this is a big, pretty big deal that's brought up later with the brother, is that he didn't know that Michael Myers lived in this house. I don't, I can't begin to understand how they've lived there for however long they've lived there. And somehow, nobody told them, hey, by the way, you're living in the house of of one of the worst serial killers in American history. I mean, for the movie, of course. It's like mind-boggling that this kid who also goes to high school is just ignorant to this. That is completely mind-boggling, and it's completely unbelievable as well. Of course, everybody would know. Yeah. I mean, they clearly, they make posters of Michael Myers. They know it's been banned because of Halloween. And for Pete's sake, Laurie Strode, who was originally hunted down by him, is their relative. Right. And it, <sighs> even more crazy that it is a Strode family uh, coming back to essentially live in the house. Uh, and they, still, they never heard of this Michael Myers living in this house. What is that? It makes no sense to me. And both cuts don't even address this, which is sad. Well, the one thing that I am a little bit glad about is in the producer's cut, Loomis talking about the nonsense of the house is fairly trimmed down. He kind of seems to say, he's like, it's possible since you're related to Laurie Strode and, you know... Just because of the Strode connection, you could be targets. Okay, that's much better, thankfully. Right. Uh, so, also, I did notice this movie also did a lot of visual nods to the original first Halloween movie, especially the producer's cut, but this one does as well, like Tommy dropping the pumpkin, Kara walking home, um, shots of, in the producer's cut, Danny looks out the window a few times and sees Michael standing there. Also... Uh, the parents in this movie are named John and Deborah. Clearly, a nod to John Carpenter and Deborah Hill, the creators of the series. So, I, I mean, I'll give it credit for creating those kind of illusions and callbacks. The theatrical cut doesn't really do a very good job, but at least the producers does. Yeah, it's very clear that uh, the writer—I always forget his name—Farrens. Uh, uh, he even said, and this isn't in the article that I read, he was very much trying to harken back and reference different, the other two movies, uh, the first two, Darren Carpenter, all that stuff like that. He wanted to kind of, once again, he like I said earlier, he wanted to mesh this with one and two and get them connected. And he, yeah, he had small details here and there, like you just mentioned, the dropping of the pumpkin and the mom and dad, things like that. It, he's trying to tie this whole series together in a way that makes a little bit of sense. Right. Uh Okay, so I was looking more of my notes of the producer's cut, and Tommy does explain anyone living in Michael's house, he thinks that's his family. So there is, I was really disappointed to see that. And he also says if Michael kills the last of his kin, then his power is over. 
but this begs the question why make a baby in the first place and i don't know how tommy would even know that my guess is that it has to be a boy but even then you are pretty lucky uh to get a boy on the first try i'm just saying uh i don't know they don't ever explain it makes no sense the baby doesn't really do much i think really the only reason why is because oh it's it's spookier when a kid is in is when a kid is in danger i i honestly don't know why why this is all a thing why there is a baby involved in this once again rosemary's baby had a baby of course but at least that one made sense and that one had a clear reason for it um i kind of want to stop comparing this to rosemary's baby because beyond the baby part they are kind of different okay so i've got a few questions for you what do you think of michael not using his signature knife in this movie he just uses lots of various equipment um what do you think of his walk he doesn't have that robotic walk he has this big lumbering walk where he throws his arms back and forth and then what do you think of the new mask so i'll work backwards the the new mask i mean it looks pretty similar to the one in five which i know we both kind of liked um but maybe a little bit more basic towards one in four i know they wanted to go more for the the mask in four um so i mean it it works It, it it is not so basic that it is kind of silly and like it isn't for uh yeah the actor who plays him i guess he kind of depends on what cut we're talking about uh yeah he's at times he doesn't exactly feel like michael myers to me he just kind of because michael myers he has this persona in this way of acting whenever he is on screen and they kind of have that, but the walk is a bit different. The small details are a little bit different. We don't, in the theatrical cut, we don't spend very much time with Michael just in general, which is an odd choice, at least up until the very end. Uh, producer's cut definitely has more time spent on him. Um, and so, yeah, this Michael is interesting. And in terms of the knife, uh, they did bring it back in the in the end when uh, after he kills the mom, and then. Uh, Kara is in the house and mom kind of flops, flops down from the ceiling. You do see a knife in mom and he takes the knife out and begins to use that. Oh, no, no, that's the axe. Um, anyways, <laughs> yeah, Michael doesn't use a knife. I didn't really notice that up until when you just mentioned it. That's interesting. Yeah, why didn't they use that? Hmm. I don't that's know. That's kind of silly. To me, it seems like they're trying to be more like Friday the 13th where you could use the harpoon gun or mm-hmm. machete or whatever axe i don't know i was uh, i think the new mask looks fairly good you can see some of the eyes too much i think the hair is too wild i do miss the knife right. but uh not okay with the transitions in this movie like when she says all it takes is a mother's touch and then a slashing cut to tommy talking about the celtic legend and I do want to mention here, the talk about Sam Hain is not out of left field, actually. If you go back and rewatch Halloween yeah. 2, you will notice that Michael wrote Sam Hain, which is not how it's pronounced. It's Sawin, I believe. And he wrote that on the chalkboard of a school and had a stabbed through a picture like a you know a little stick figure picture of a girl so that's not out of left field so i can go with it if they're going to expound upon that that was a mystery in the second one if they're going to go there then it's not 
completely unbelievable. Right, yeah. And I can see him going there, but the the way that they go there in this movie doesn't... it. They, okay, this thing and a lot of Michael's things and the fact that Jamie is dying, it sounds like we're pulling for lack of a better comparison, The Last Jedi kind of a thing, where we're changing things from the original formula uh, to try something new. I don't think it works very well here because it it doesn't exactly implement implement these ideas very well. The uh, When Tommy's explaining uh, the whole druid thing and the Curse of Thorn and Samhain or Sawin... Uh, that was in two things for me just go downhill as if they weren't already downhill because not only are we getting into uh, this cliche, well, not only have we already got already gotten into this cliche of a slasher just by design, but now we're getting into this cliche of, oh, it's a ritual with these druids. And when the stars align in such a way the new things are going to happen. And it just goes to a point where I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like, did we need to go here and explain Michael's motive for all of this stuff? It feels like we have to have something to make a movie. Let's make this up. And they ran with it without really thinking, okay, well, what does this, how does this impact Michael's story as a whole? I don't believe it needs any explanation i don't want any explanation but if they're going to give us explanation then i guess i'm okay with how there is this alignment and that's when it activates him to kill and go after his family members i think that's kind of an interesting concept i think they kind of make it cheesy and confusing in this but like i said if that's where they're gonna go then i'm actually okay with i can't say that i am had this been Maybe a small idea, and then eventually they built up to this. Maybe I would have been able to get into it and have, of course, had they better explained it. And this one, it feels like we've completely changed the motive for for uh, Michael. And it's kind of unfortunate because, like you said, it it just kind of comes out in some versions comes out of left field and especially in the theatrical version because I just don't really explain it at all. But with this one, it just, I don't, like you said, I don't need an explanation. It's honestly, it's scarier to me, Michael not having too much of an explanation than it is for him to have this. It, I feel like I would have been much, I would have been more scared had Michael never be, really been given that much of an explanation besides in the first one what we got of he... Well, I guess the second one, we we find out that he is killing for... Because she is because Jamie is the daughter. It just kind of feels like... Eh, and then just throws it at you because we have to make a movie. It just... It it doesn't flow in my mind. It kind of goes against a lot of the other things that Halloween's already set up. And I guess it makes sense because... John Carpenter originally wanted to leave the movie ambiguous. He didn't want to make a sequel, but they said, no, we're going to make a sequel. So he's like, okay, I guess we'll kind of explain a little bit. And they did. And then from there, it was just a tidal wave of over-explanation and going down an origin story that just completely lost the air of mystery right, to yeah. it. There really is no mystery and, anymore with Michael. It, it's all explained. And so now yeah. this kind of sets up for another movie. It's just like... <laughs> 
well, it's just going to be on repeat now. Like, well, I'm curious. I'm really honestly curious to see what else they're going to throw into this pie because this is just this is a ridiculous recipe. Right. And I, yeah, I would have been very interesting to see what they would do with the seventh installment. But honestly, all of this talk of Celtic legends and whatnot, very much closer to Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. That's a great comparison. Uh, poor movie to be compared to that one. And that's why it just seems like this could be honestly more of a successor to Halloween 3, if with at least the ideas and concepts anyway, but anyways... But we do get some even more backstory. So apparently Mrs. Blankenship knows that Michael heard voices inside of his head. And apparently hearing voices is something they kind of took from the novelization of the original Halloween, where they said Michael's grandfather, I believe, heard voices. I didn't read it. I don't know. That's just what I read somewhere. Anyways. I don't know how she knows Danny hears voices. I don't know how she knows Michael heard voices. And she says, you know, I was babysitting him that night. He basically just ran across the street and murdered his sister. None of this doesn't, this doesn't make any sense until you later find out she is a part of it. And she calls him little Mikey Myers, which is right. stupid. And we are, however long into this movie, we're about 40 minutes. No, no, no. We're an hour in. And this is the first time she says a word in this entire movie. Both cuts have this. And so we we're setting up this brand new character that's supposed to be some kind of surprise in the end. And it's just like, why are you doing this now? It's kind of late to be introducing right. new characters. Well, and this seems like kind of a horror trope is you introduce a harmless little old lady in the first act. And then towards the beginning of the third act, you will find out she is insidious and has been doing some dark magic on you the whole right. time. Yeah, it just a cliche it comes out of nowhere it's only i really don't know why she was even in here in the first place it had you taken her out nothing much would have changed i did like in the producer's cut we saw a number of people one of them was miss blankenship in their outfits what would have been more impactful is if there would have been people all along we saw throughout the movie and then later on, to come to find out, they've all been a part of it. Right. Now, I know that was Farron's original idea. I think that would have been more effective because even the way they introduce these people in these shots of how they come into view, I'm like, wait, am I supposed to know who this is? Right. But I don't know anybody. Yeah, it would have made it a lot more impactful. Be like, oh, I remember that guy from when this happened or... Right. interesting that character is also in this yeah we don't really get that it is we have maybe two or three characters that we know in this group uh like the seven or eight maybe 12 and the rest of them are just random people that we just find uh it's yeah it really doesn't do much for this movie had they gone down the route that you were talking about they would have been much more impactful but it isn't and it's kind of unfortunate was there ever a point in this movie when you just wanted it to be over yes multiple points <laughs> Especially in the theatrical cut, at multiple points, I think I counted on my hand at least five. I said I could turn this off. I have the option to do so, and in many times I came very close to doing that. I didn't, however. Um, now I'm kind of wondering if maybe I probably could, and just gone straight for the producer's <laughs> cut. Uh, yes, multiple points. I'm just like I could turn this off. I really could. I have that. I have that option. 
One of the points in the movie where it loses me in quick succession is when it's first when the dad's head explodes, and then second when the little girl says it's raining red. Yeah, my first time was when the dad was introduced uh, and he had his scene. That was when I was like, I could turn this off. I legit could during the theatrical cut um and because of everything else that just gone on in a couple of moments but yes dad's head exploding i said okay uh i was more laughing than i was thinking that i could turn it off and then yeah though a thing with the kid uh with the blood uh yeah okay it's like we're ma- at this point we're just making it scary by any way we can it feels like desperation Okay, so, you know, we get this whole big scene. Uh, at least we know why Barry is now murdered. It's because he accidentally went into the wrong van. We learned that in the producer's cut. That was a mystery to me in the theatrical cut. And um, It makes it so jarring when Michael comes out of nowhere. <laughs> it does, but it shows all they had to do was insert the shot, the pan over shot of the van. I know. I mean, to be fair, it doesn't make complete <laughs> sense, but it makes so much more sense that they show that he had accidentally gotten in the wrong van. And it's like, we're, once again, like the line with the dad of his daughter, makes almost a world of difference that the small little detail that took three seconds to pan over and show makes this whole scene or this whole sequence when the, when the radio guy dies makes a little bit more sense. Who would have knew? You know, I don't think I can stress enough like how much this movie proves uh how much music can make make or break a movie. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh I I just found the producer's cut to be so much more enjoyable and it really set the tone so much more because of Alan uh Howard's score. Whereas the score in the theatrical cut, it just turns you off so much. Yeah. And uh, something else. Okay, let's just go ahead and kind of get towards the end here and kind of talk about the differences yeah, between they're each. Com- they're completely what did different. You th- they're completely different. But first, I want to know your reaction to the revelation of who the man in black is. They've been teasing him for a full movie. They've been teasing him for all of this movie up until the beginning yes. of the third Okay. Act. Have we seen his character before this this movie? The man who? in black. Like, his actual character, like Terrence. Oh, yeah. Terrence Wynn? Yeah, yeah, he was in the very beginning. Of Oh, of number one? No. Oh, I... No, the character of Terrence Wynn has never been seen or spoken of until this movie when we first see him come to Dr. Loomis's house. It, you know, to talk about how he wants him to yeah. take over. Clearly, he means more than just Smith's Grove. He means the right. Cult of Thorn. So, this, that is the first time we see this Dr. Wynn is in the beginning. And of course, he is sprinkled throughout because he is always playing both sides. Basically, Emperor Palpatine from Star Wars. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. I was kind of hoping that maybe he was another character that I just missed along the way. This is kind of underwhelming. I mean, I honestly, Man in Black was introduced in the last movie, and he's done very little. Uh, he shows up in a vision from Danny multiple points. Um, he, as we come to believe now that uh, he is now the leader of this cult run by Terrence, who is the Man in Black. 
it's underwhelming. It just, I don't really care because I never cared for Terrence as a character in the first place. Uh, he's just feels like, well, we have, we set him up in the last movie. Crap. Now we have to do something with it. And so they made Terrence a character and turned him in to the, uh, the man in black. I mean, it makes sense because he runs the sanitarium and stuff like that. So I, I like that part of it, but in terms of a surprise, a twist, it's like, uh, you know yeah i would have preferred them to bring back because we do see who's in charge of smith's grove in the very first movie in a very brief scene it's not the same guy at all so there's zero connection right honestly this feels like a scooby-doo moment i put in my notes zoinks it's old uh dr win yes that is such a good comparison <laughs> Oh, that actually it's really a, hurts the movie if you really think about it, though. <laughs> it does. This is very much a Scooby-Doo reveal. I remember being so disappointed when I first saw this. I was like, I, I honestly was thinking the man in black because he dresses like a cowboy. He's got spurs on his boots, for Pete's sake. I, I was guess expecting it is him to be this. Although that is I more of a guess. stereotype than you think. I was expecting a more Clint Eastwood, tough you know man in black like from the dark tower series type of character not old man win right anyways i do love the way loomis says when he uh he's like it's like obi-wan facing against darth vader he's like when i might have known it was you yeah It's, it's just ridiculous and care uh love kara's scream and I, I gotta say, I thought her name was Carol the whole movie. So every time I put Carol in my notes, <laughs> that's funny. I but once again, I, I can't remember her name because I'm terrible with names. So I'm just like main character. <laughs> yeah, I love when Kara sees its blank and ship is a traitor, and her first thought is, "I'm just going to jump out of a two story window." Yeah, like okay, what? <laughs> <laughs> just doesn't give it a second thought. Just darts for it and. Her okay. Her expression when she when it has the out it, the exterior shot of her of her going through the window is so mm. funny because it's just so deadpan. Like the like the uh, the stunt devil is just like it's the fifth time I've done this. <laughs> it's just it's just <sighs> funny to me. Well, of course, Loomis and Tommy are drugged for some reason. They are left alive conveniently. Well, not just that, but they don't show them get drugged. So I was very confused when we cut away from this moment when they capture uh, yeah. all the peoples and then cut back and they're like we were drugged and it's just like they were <laughs> like what <laughs> i thought the exact same thing and of course loomis magically knows it's going to take place at smith's grove even though he's like wrong in every movie right and so i don't understand why it's at smith's grove okay so Wynn says apparently Loomis was the first to see pure evil. Why now is he just now bringing this up? And he says, well, no, he just says what I just said. And I put in my notes, okay, what? I want you to join me, Loomis. Why didn't he do this two movies ago? See, they teased Jamie would be the new Michael in the end of four, but then dropped that for five. But now they want Danny to be the murderer or the baby. I don't know. Which is it? This is very confusing. Yeah, I, I, okay, I do love the line. It makes no sense. 
the line that Terrence says when he's when he's talking about my uh when he talk about all this and yeah Loomis says uh Loomis was the first one to see evil incarnate and I said but not the Myers family because they were the ones who saw Michael first but the line that comes after this uh from Terrence is he talks about Michael and he says evil pure uncorrupted oh, yeah. ancient and I'm just like uncorrupted and what <laughs> what <laughs> untainted evil yes that has not been tainted <laughs> by evil. that line uncorrupted was just like what so pretty much at this point i want to shut the movie off really bad because it's being dragged out so much there's an insane woman that is stabbed and says crazy things for no reason just to get to that point also just to introduce michael's there when they couldn't just show him there already i don't know right okay and the baby sitting there and Danny's looking at x-rays, and the surgeons are about to do a surgery. I don't understand this at all. And then Michael breaks in and stabs all of them to death with strobe lights. What? Yeah. I'm, and it's funny because Random. Terrence has said, I'm the I'm the protector of Michael. And he's like, I, of course, f- for some reason, th- this ending has, this in the theatrical has so many things wrong with it. Uh, for some reason, Michael is not the top dog. It's Terrence actually come to find out michael which once again brings michael's character down even more because he's just like well that's underwhelming that michael essentially isn't doing what he wants to do he's having to adhere to the rules or whatever that's part of it and then yeah doctors are operating on something in the operation room and then michael decides that they're done so he walks in and kills them all what (laughs) <laughs> this entire ending was uh, then the lady, and then of course we have the cliche of "Join me, Loomis." You know, yeah. together we can insert rule whatever here. You know, <sighs> this ending is fr- just just downright frustrating because it, I, I can't like you said, I can't begin to wrap my brain around what they're trying to do because on one hand they're trying to finish up the story and finish up Michael's arc, but it also kind of feels like they're just throwing in cliches because they don't know what else to do. It is just in this ending is just kind of all over the place. I also can't understand what is it with these babies in goo. And then later when Tommy hits Michael so much in the face, it looks like goo comes out of his face. It almost makes me think he's like some lab experiment of, of a goo creature. Right. Maybe it's the symbolization of Michael's rebirth because he kind of comes back. Uh, yeah, in the a, end, you're you're trying. I'm to do something I, I nice for this in my movie. Notes. I put that in my notes. I said I am looking too deep in this into this movie. But anyone who has any kind of cognitive ability would understand that this movie is just kind of all over the place, yeah. and it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <sighs> okay, so. Do you want to just give our recommendation and rating for theatrical, and then we can just briefly talk about the producers and give our recommendation for that? Yeah, let's do that. I'm kind of done with the theatrical. So, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, theatrical cut? I'm honestly just sad that I wasted 88 minutes on this movie. Mm. (laughs) Because... There are so many things wrong in this movie, and it kind of just leads me to believe that uh, 
somebody who didn't know how to edit a movie or better yet somebody who learned hey look at this cool new trick i learned on final cut pro or whatever they decided that they were going to edit this movie and they took someone's previous work and the dimension film said here just take it give us something that's quicker and in and from uh george lucas faster more intense it just feels like we were trying so hard to make to make a cut that is already probably the best it can be even better turns it back around and now it's just it's a stoop it's stupid again it the cut is this is a horrid editing horrid editing not just in terms of transition between the random flashes and things like that but there are things there are pieces chunks missing from this movie that explained integral pieces of this plot and for some reason they decide that it's okay to cut it out it makes it a wild experiment or experience because this movie has no cohesion and things just scenes are just inserted at will just because ah i don't know what else but here so this needs to be explained they throw it in it this movie is just a, it's a mess that's the, the bottom line it's a complete mess and it's a it's filled with cliches dumb character motivations if there even is one dumb characters in general terrible music it's just all around just a terrible experience uh Two out of ten. Don't don't watch this if you can't if you can help it. It's not recommend. Yeah, Halloween Six burns down everything the previous two were starting to build. While providing some answers, there are so many threads that are left dangling. One wonders why this was even put out. This movie features horrible acting and oh gosh, what more can I say? All copies should be burned. This is trash garbage, and I'm giving it 1 out of 10 with the strongest of not recommends. Uh, yeah, it's horrible. It's scum, but let's go ahead and just briefly talk about producer's cut because it is 100% yes, different. Yes, well, I would say 97% <laughs> different. There's a couple of things that are the same. <laughs> okay, well, I do like there is a better explanation of Loomis and Wynn's relationship Wynn has said, you've spent your yes. whole life going after Michael. You can't beat him, so join him. It is now time for you to be the new guardian of the Cult of Thorn. And like you said, it is very much like, join me and together we can rule the galaxy. He doesn't want it. Uh, but clearly they're going to make Danny into the new Michael and therefore Loomis. I'm assuming the, the Curse of Thorn would give him some kind of powers to stay younger. So it would be kind of cool if in Halloween 7 he was recast as a younger man um, mm -hmm. because clearly he died so they couldn't do anything with him with that. So I'm assuming he would be recast yeah. in a younger way. Um, I do find it kind of creepy and eerie, the sacrificial scene, but I do like how uh, Tommy uh, sneaks in and kind of saves the day and then I did think it was cool. How he's kind of doing this like Yu-Gi-Oh magic where he's pulling his runes out and he's like cutting his hand. And I was disappointed though because it was cut short. I was expecting some really cool incantation and then he would like all of a sudden jump up and do something to Michael. But Michael just grabs him and he's like Sam Hain. And that was it. So also uh, Paul Rudd looks really funny running around in the robe. And... Yes, it was kind of intensive at first, but it was cut off, like I said. Uh, 
I do feel the end is still sloppy because it's just a cliffhanger with Loomis, but I get Loomis now has the curse of Thorin and he must be Michael's protector instead of his persecutor. That's a cool concept, but Michael escaping in the man in black's clothes is kind of surprising, silly, and out of character. I still don't get why they switched clothes, I guess, so Michael could escape. Uh, my other thought was that Loomis is now the murderer. Michael will become the man in black. I don't think this one is ripe. That was my original thought. Yeah, this ending is quite a bit better. Um, I mean, to be fair, that still isn't saying much. Uh, the tone, okay, the tone overall of this producer's cut is held at a in a very compact and very streamlined way. So it's kind of, it remains the same throughout the entire movie, whereas the theatrical cut is all over the place. So yeah, this ending, I've definitely felt more intensity from this ending. It's kind of silly that uh, Tommy finds a, just a robe hanging up behind on the balcony that he's in. And somehow nobody really notices that, Hey, wait a minute. This guy doesn't look, this guy's different. I haven't seen him before because it's like a group of like 12 people. And so I, you would think that a new guy would stick out regardless, regardless. Um, Yes, this ending is, uh, it feels a bit more intense. It feels a bit more, uh, just just overall, more dark than the, than the theatrical version. Because now we're going to kill, we're going to kill uh, main character Kara. Baby might also die. Things like that. You know, it, there ha- it has some pretty big stakes. Whereas the theatrical is, kind of has stakes. Anyways... The conversation between Loomis and uh, Terrence feels more is so much better because you don't have the join me and together will, aka join me together or and together will rule the galaxy or things like that. We they cut some of that out and it just feels like a better conversation all the way around. Uh, Tommy doesn't hear some random voice, but he does find one of the one of the guys, one of the uh I, for lack of a better word one of the ritualists walking down the hallway when there was no door he came out of regardless uh it just makes it just flows so much better but i do begin to laugh when tommy like pulls out his runes and puts it in a circle and is like okay and cuts himself and starts the ritual it's just kind of it's silly to me it brings back i didn't like the rune thing before and i still don't like it now um anyways kind of a it's kind of a confusing ending that Loomis who is the voice of who is the embodiment of good is now having evil cast upon him it does open more doors for okay well now what else can we do with this but of course uh character of Loomis Donna Pleasant is now dead uh I don't know if they'll continue that I we still have one more we still have more movies to go through anyways so it this ending is just all around it's it's better and it gives even though they both end with a cliffhanger this one feels more like they actually had thought put into it whereas the other one the theatrical version just is kind of thrown together reshoots on all over the place just so they can have some kind of ending that's a that's still a cliffhanger so yeah it's it's honestly much better it it fits so it fits it just fits with the movie what the movie's trying to say and how it is constructed all things like that all right I think the big question here is does this cut fix all the problems that the theatrical cut does? Some of them. 
Yes, it does give very clear motivation. It is longer. It's amazing what six minutes onto a movie can do. Uh, and really, I mean, it's it's astounding. Um, it makes things much more clear than whatever it was before. It it it, it does a really good. It is a much much better job because we have scenes, integral scenes in this cut that aren't in the other one, where it explains things, and we need that. But there are still core issues here. There's things still don't make any sense. Uh, I'm then left up to this question of, okay, well, how did we end up here? Because we went from Michael who and Michael Myers in the very first Halloween, who's trying to kill, who just really, from what we remember, from what I know, little little motivation just kind of shows up uh, and decides to kill. And in this one, they then turn it into the constellation of the stars. They're aligned in such a way that this happens. And it's just like, how did we end up here? For some reason, someone thought this would be, uh, this would be our, our man, the writer, that it was a better idea to introduce constellations, astro- astronomy, more cultist things into a Halloween movie, which makes no sense. And it just, it, it's a, such a dichotomy between from every other movie that's come before it. I would even say three because at the very least three has is more of a pumpkin has things like that inside of it, even though it is really stupid. It just feels like we're, even though we have, even though we, okay. It feels like even though we fix the issues uh, with the, even though we fixed the pacing issues and things like that, we are still missing the core problem of the, the core problem of the story. It feels more like a Batman versus Superman than it does anything else, where the core problems are still there. They are just explained better. Overall, it's it's at least bearable. It's enjoyable to a certain extent, and it it has serious issues. And I don't think I could ever return to this either cut. But it is better than the theatrical version. Much better. Four out of ten, not recommend. Overall, I actually really liked this I can't one. believe you. It's the Fine. <laughs> it's, it's the closest to the original in tone and visuals. And yes, I would like to return to it in the future. It fixes a lot of the plot holes and er- errors riddled in the first movie. The theatrical cut was so sloppily put together, it boggles the mind... Why they even put out why they even put out that cut that had major issues when they clearly had this footage. This is pretty much an entirely different movie because of the direction that it takes. I'm so glad the producer's cut became a reality and fixed what was an abysmal mess. Now, I see why this is the superior cut. Funny how when I first watched it, I thought it was horrible and the theatrical was better. I can't believe you. <laughs> I'm giving Halloween The Curse of Michael Myers 6 stars out of 10 with a slight recommend. It's still a mediocre movie, but it's the closest to the first with great recreations of certain scenes and musical timing. So yeah, I mean, it's still not a great movie, but it's kind of almost so bad it's good, but it's also kind of so weird it's good in a way. Uh, I still liked it, actually. The ideas were weird, and they took those risks, and they followed through with that really weird direction yeah. they took. Yeah, no, it's nowhere near the original or even 
the well the second one's fine but anyways so thank you so much for listening to our review of halloween the curse of michael myers this one was a little longer because of the two cuts we had to discuss that were vastly different but i had a lot of fun discussing this thanks for joining yeah, me sure thing it was fun i mean it's just i just i'm just surprised and if anything is clear to me Five minutes onto a movie does a can do a world of difference, and we will be talking about uh, in our discussion coming up. We'll be talking about the different cuts of movies. What is the difference between an extended cut, a producer's cut, work print version, director's cut, etc.? We'll be kind of diving into those. Are they better? Are they worse? Are they necessary? Are they unnecessary? And we'll be giving you multiple examples of different films that utilize that type of format. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Also, our Patreon system, we're really close to finalizing it. And that if it's not up and live for you to start subscribing and getting some really cool extra content at the point of the release of this podcast, then it will be up very shortly afterwards. But make sure to share Silver Screen Guide. Give this a like and go ahead and follow us on your favorite social media platform. And so you never miss anything. But once again, thank you so much for continuing with us on this Halloween retrospective series. I'm super pumped for this October for the brand new film where John Carpenter is coming back to produce and do the score. Jamie Lee Curtis is coming back. It's the perfect storm. I'm super excited. So once again, thank you for joining us and we'll catch you next time. So uh, here I have the Razzies. There's a movie called Striptease that won Worst Picture. Um, okay. it, yeah. Um, I'm trying to see what else that I know here. There really isn't. I've heard of nothing. Basically, Striptease won all of the war- most of the most of the awards here. Uh, oh yeah, and Twister. Twister also Twister? got. Uh, Worst written film grossing over a hundred million. Oh wow! I will admit it. I've never seen Twister. I believe you've seen it. Is that right? I have. Yes. That's so. Yes, I have. In fact, seen it. In fact, actually, hang on. I need to redo that because I was looking. Oops, I was looking at the wrong oh. year. <laughs> okay. Let me try this over again.